Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie here. I'm sorry about last week. Uh, You may have heard or you may not have. Uh, I was uh, one of the lucky ones who got hurt at the uh, Nigel Farage demonstration last Friday. There was a demonstration outside the Sobertel at the top of Collins Street, which of course was uh, also, there was about 200 or so demonstrators. Uh, One thing about that particular location is uh, it's uh, got a got fabulous acoustics, <laughs> so uh, it sounded very uh, big and uh, round. Uh, there was uh, lines of uh, ordinary police uh, stopping um, people from um, demonstrated from entering into the uh, side of the Sovertel and also down at Collins Place. But there were also a whole lot of these uh, public order response uh, officers there practicing a particular um, routine which apparently is what they use at prison riots where they sort of uh, fold themselves link themselves into a long snake and they were coming out behind the ordinary uh, police and uh, uh, picking people who wanted to go into the Nigel Farage uh, event sort of a kind of a alternative version of uh, grabbing um, offenders, (laughs) these people were apparently the law-abiding going in to listen to a racist from England to talk about how you could promote racism, I presume. That was his theme. But anyway, um, uh, and I just happened to be standing there and I got forcibly pushed over and I broke the top, uh, I, my top of my arm was uh, broken. I keep having to tr- stop saying, oh, I broke my arm, because actually I take no responsibility for having broken the top of my arm. But anyway, spent a long time in uh, emergency and uh, ended up uh, unable to come and have my usual chat with you guys on a Sunday, Saturday morning. So uh, uh, I'm here, I'm alive but it's painful and I'm quite an irritable little fish. It's not going to be ready or finished until f- for another five weeks, for goodness sake. How's about that? Anyway, hopefully we'll be able to talk to someone from the uh, uh, Australian Federation of uh, Community Legal Services who they've got this uh, event coming up on Wednesday called Transforming uh, Democracy uh, it's a state conference and it's on Wednesday and it's going to be on at the town hall 
and it's got this fascinating lineup of people that are, and it's all based around the uh, notion that uh, in order to have a thriving society, everyone should be treated equally by the law. And of course, this is uh, one of the uh, things that uh, the development of the community legal services was all about in the 1970s, 80s. It was a new, they were the new kids on the block where the idea was that uh, law was out of the hands of uh, the common citizen needed a lot of money to be able to defend your rights and uh, that's where the community legal services came in. They're, they're actually an incredibly important element within our society and they're putting on this uh, state conference which is called Transforming Democracy, Cleaning, Claiming Our Power, a one-day summit that will bring people from across Victoria together to build the skills, meet like-minded people and grow the networks needed to tackle these big challenges which... Uh, which uh, the police taking our, over our streets is actually uh, representing. You you probably did catch up with the, the notion that uh, enormous amounts of money have been now given over to the Victorian police for uh, new armaments, which uh, the, uh, the uh, Herald uh, Scum uh, tells us they're non-fatal. They're non-fatal. Well, tell it to the person who actually eventually... Dies. Anyway, by the by. So if you want to have anything to do with that uh, conference, which is on at the uh, town hall on, uh, and it starts at 8.30am and goes to 5.30, so it's a rigorous thing. And I'm hoping to talk to somebody about that so you can get an idea of it. If you're interested in it, you can go to eventbrite.com, B-R-I-T-E, eventbrite.com, and uh, look under... Um, Transforming Democracy, and you will be able to get yourself a ticket. Now, uh, later on, we're going to have a look at industrial manslaughter after you may have been listening to Stick Together and the appalling, absolutely appalling death of the worker at the Box Hill site where they were um, smothered by a bin of wet cement and uh, what the person who died was actually hit by the kibble. So uh, there you go. <laughs> that was a great day at work. And um, uh, anyway, I thought I'd uh, highlight the campaign that's going on in Victoria coming out of Victorian Trades Hall, uh, the man, um, industrial manslaughter campaign that's coming up. We're going to be talking to Lou Wheeler about um, the, uh, the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners uh, strategy to deal with poverty. And uh, later on... This is for the Wolfie, the old Wolfie. Um, I've got a few excerpts from uh, the tribute that was made to Laurie Carmichael uh, on um, uh, recently in the, the Melbourne tribute because there's uh, tributes going on all over the country for Laurie Carmichael who was a, uh, a big figure in the union movement as you'll probably remember, and if you're a younger person, you won't. But he was uh, instrumental in uh, the uh, the accord. Uh, he was uh, a lifelong communist. And uh, uh, and according to the people that gave him tri uh, tributes, uh, an extraordinary strategist. Anyway, I decided to play two pieces. One is from Senator Doug Cameron, who was there, because it was his union. He was... Uh, Laurie Carmichael was the Assistant Secretary of what became the AMWU and that, of course, is where Senator Doug Cameron began uh, before he came into uh, Parliament. And 
followed by Sally McManus, who is now the uh, secretary of the ACTU. But uh, there are other fascinating speeches. One was by Bill Kelty, which was too long, but maybe there will be a chance to hear from him because it's quite a revealing speech, I'll have to say. Uh, but anyway, we'll get on with business and uh, go to a few important messages before we kick off. Darabin Council is conducting a review of everything it does to support people over 65 and we want your input. Whether you're an older Darabin resident, approaching retirement or have ageing parents or loved ones, this review is relevant to you. We need all perspectives on how we can make Darabin an age-friendly city. For more information, visit our website on www.darabin.vic.gov.au or call Darabin Council on 8470-8470 to speak in your language. The City of Darabin is a 3CR supporter. launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entries free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. 3CR supporter. Have you been a patient at Monash Health? Then we need your help. Because we care for patients from so many countries speaking so many different languages, we need your help to make the patient experience better. To make a real difference, register to be a consumer advisor. Visit the Monash Health website, monashhealth.org. Monash Health is a 3CR supporter. I want to chat about industrial manslaughter. I won't take much of your time. I want to start by telling you guys a story about, a true story about what currently happens under our laws, under our current laws, yeah? So there was a, a tree cutting company, Redback Tree Proprietary Limited. They went out to a job and they quoted this job. They looked at this tree and, and gave a quote for cutting it down. And when they, when they gave that quote, they told the family, you know, there's some power lines close to that tree. We've got to take that into account, right? They then sat down, they wrote out a safe work method statement, yeah? And on that safe work method statement, they wrote down, it's close to power lines. And then they didn't write a control. No control for the proximity to the power lines went on that safe work method statement. They then sent a 22-year-old up that tree to cut it down. The court said, when this ended up in the court, the court said that that company relied on nothing more than the skill and agility of that young man to avoid hitting power lines. That is all they relied on. 
They could have shut them off. They could have suppressed them, and they did nothing. Right? The inevitable happened to that kid. He hit those power lines, and he didn't get to go home to his family that night. And under our current laws, what happened under our current laws is that company ended up in court, and that company got fined 140 grand. 140 grand. Jerry and I were at WorkSafe yesterday looking at another prosecution where a farm worker got crushed by a tractor that hadn't been maintained at all. They were starting it with a screwdriver or something. Right? That company got fined 40 grand. This is what's happening right now under our laws. And so that's why we're running this industrial manslaughter campaign, is because we want to change those laws. There's a critical moment coming up in this industrial manslaughter campaign. Victorians are going to the polls on November 24 to decide who's going to lead the Victorian government in future. We've got a commitment from a couple of parties that they will back in industrial manslaughter laws. But there are some parties that are yet to make that commitment. So what we're doing in the industrial manslaughter campaign is we are going around and we are knocking on doors, we are talking to voters in marginal seats and we are asking them to pledge to support industrial manslaughter laws at the next election. So far, the OHS team and Trades Hall and all our volunteers, we've collected hundreds of these, hundreds of them in marginal seats throughout Victoria. And we're not stopping. We've got door knocks coming up throughout September and October where we are going to keep on talking to voters about making a change for industrial manslaughter laws. Now, who here supports industrial manslaughter laws? Who reckons we need them? Right, in your bags is one of these, and a pen. What I'd like you to do is pull it out right now, and I'd like you to fill it in. If you're behind industrial manslaughter laws, we'd like you to fill that in, put your name and your address on it. Right? What we're gonna do is we will, we will take these back to our office, and we will mail you out, use, we'll mail you out your pledge, and we'll mail you out of how to vote. We'll tell you which parties are going to back industrial manslaughter laws, and we'll tell you which parties won't. So when you go to vote in November, you can vote for industrial manslaughter laws. All right, so just take a minute and fill out that pledge. Yes, well, there you go. Uh, they were um, pretty full on. And I'm now joined in the studio by the wonderful Rebecca. G'day, Rebecca. How are G'day. you? G'day. Yeah, I'm she, good. She's yep. come to help me, which is great. And hopefully she'll be part of the team. Yes. Yes. Uh, anyway, that was, da- that was actually, that event was actually down at CFMEU. It was, and I'll be reporting on this. This is a, a campaign about cilia, uh, which is being called the uh, new, uh, Asbestos, but anyway, that's another story. But uh, the they took the opportunity to talk about the in Victorian industrial manslaughter slaughter campaign that's going on. And if you want to actually make a pledge, you can go to www.megaphone.org.au forward slash petitions forward slash industrial dash manslaughter. And if you do that. They, it uh, gives you the opportunity to press a button and then they will make contact with you. It's a very important affair. And uh, uh, we can now move on to one of the things that I wanted to tell you about, which is uh, the um, 
upcoming uh, Federation of Community Legal Services Transforming Democracy State Conference, and we've got Belinda on the line. G'day, Belinda. Hello, Belinda. Hey, how are you going? Good, yes. I'm very impressed with the uh, the roll call of people that you've got <laughs> coming to yeah. this event. Yeah, we're really, look, we feel really, really excited. So this year... Um, you know, Transforming Democracy, Claiming Our Power is our what, what we call the Community Legal Centre Thought of State Conference. Um, it's for people um, who work and volunteer in community legal centres and their communities. So really, um, obviously, 3CR listeners um, and um, everybody who wants to come, you know, are welcome too. And um, this year, we've, we're very, very lucky in that our sort of um, our inspiring sort of keynote speaker is Raquel Willis. Uh, so Raquel, for, um, if you don't know, she's um, she's a trans um, activist from the US, and from um, she was pivotal in the Black Lives Matter movement, and she's coming to um, speak to the Victorian uh, community about um, organising mar- for marginalised communities and to transform social change, and she is an inspiring speaker. We are absolutely thrilled to um, have her to come. And there's lots of others as well um, that, you know, that are our Victorian inspiring speakers as well that we're really excited about. We have Antoinette Braybrook. Um, mm. She's the CEO of um, JIRA, you know, which is our Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention Legal Service. Uh, people will know of um, Antoinette. She has, uh, she has spoken out um, about the way that Aboriginal women in particular have been um, treated for a long time by um, by society um, in relation to being marginalised and discriminated against and also in um, the way that our family violence is experienced by the Aboriginal community. And so she is coming as well. We also have Jill Pryor, who is... Um, many people will know Jill Pryor from her amazing... Um, litigation work in criminal law she has um so she is the head of the law and advocacy center for women um and she's basically dedicated her whole life her whole career to um to ensuring that um the that she advocates for um the protections and the um protections of um, Aboriginal community people, Aboriginal community and she um, so she's worked at um, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service for like over a decade she then went and worked at um, JIRA um, which was then known as the Aboriginal Family Prevention and Legal Service and then she has now set up the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women which focuses specifically on the criminalisation um, experienced by women in the legal cent- in the legal service. Yeah well I'll cut in, in the- there Belinda and um, oh, I, I, no no I no no, no, it's not, that's fine because in actual fact, these are, this is only the tip of the iceberg of the people that yes. you've got. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, just uh, looking, there's a, a fellow there called Saramush who is yes. a principal lawyer at the West Justice in West, uh, Western Melbourne and yes. also volunteers at the Kimberley Community Legal Service. But there's this yes. fantastic thing. You obviously ask different people to write uh, something about themselves. And uh, yes. one of the statements he makes is... <laughs> is uh, decolonising the law, state accountability, structural mm. oppression, critical lawyering, and um, and seeking collaborators. And given the state of uh, Victorian police and the trajectory of uh, law and order approach in Victoria at the moment, uh, 
this is absolutely pivotal kind of uh, approach, not just for, oh, well, we're all minorities really, aren't we? That's the mm. focus of this conference, isn't it? How absolutely. people can actually yeah, positively affect their democracy. Absolutely, and also to um, you know, our democracy. You know, democracy is, is being more and more undermined, as we know. And um, yeah, and different ways that we can um, that we can ensure and, and yeah, and affect democracy. And Sarush is um, a wonderful um, younger leader within the community legal sector. He comes with. Um, apart from coming with passion and intelligence, he also comes with um, a really critical analysis of the ways that um, you know your traditional lawyer or your traditional community lawyer can work with communities to affect um, to affect change. Well, it's very. Di- I mean, I, I you probably didn't hear the first part of this program, but um, I went to the uh, Nigel Farage event on Friday and was oh, yes. knocked down by police, and I've got a oh. broken upper arm. And so it's a bit personal, I must say, Mm. (laughs) Um, because uh, being able to be assisted by the law, most people feel that the law is not for them. But, of course, when you're in a situation which is is on the border of personal rights and civil liberties, this is where the development of community legal services has become absolutely a, a phenomenon, hasn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. So back in um, the 70s, and I've, I'm so sorry to hear that that happened, um, and really angry to hear that happened um, to you. Uh, yes, but in the um, 70s, a number of lawyers saw that um, the civil liberties of um, many people, you know, uh, that they were working with or, you know, on the street, particularly um, targeted communities, were continuously um, being affected and, and also, um, and that you know, authorities um, such as, um, state authorities such as the police um, were um, completely misusing um, that power and were allowed to get away with it. And so community legal centres were formed, um, you know, like on an on a really sort of ad hoc level um, at, back in the 70s uh, from, um, you know, lawyers who were engaged in either suburban or private or um, some maybe commercial practices, and that they actually volunteered together to um, provide free legal advice to um, to people to speak to um, free legal advice, but also um, you know sort of try to work out ways to to address that power and to and to bring um, particularly police the, the police to account, and you know, and that's been um, an ongoing um, sort of abbreviation of campaigns across um, the decades that have been um, led by community legal centres, but really with their communities. Can um, can you? There's also some really interesting people here who are obviously of African uh, heritage who are speaking, and uh, yes. in Victoria at the moment. Uh, with the Liberal Party actively and mainstream media actively promoting a very negative uh, um, view of uh, the African communities here as a law and order issue as opposed to, you know, uh, members of our community. Uh, Can you talk to us about the people who have come to talk, uh, you know, in their professional capacity? Because they're lawyers themselves. Yes, let me just see. Um, sorry. So yeah, I'm, I'm talking about Nia Dole Nuon. Oh, Nguyen. yes. 
thank you. Of course. And, Very, Fe- and um, Phoebe Mwanza. Yes. I probably okay. said their names incorrectly. Okay. Yeah, no, no, sure. I'll speak about um, I'll speak about Nadal. So Nadal is um, N- Nadal is a um, is she, she's employed as a lawyer in Victoria, um, and she um, is from South Sudan. Uh, she is uh, really committed to um, really speaking, really, really, you know, speaking truth to power in relation to the. Um, experiences particularly of the African community, particularly young people, um, and the way that they're being depicted in um, you know, public discourse. Uh, and also in relation to the um, in relation to the experiences of the African community being um, not just targeted by the police, but obviously um, you know, used as yet again um, another political um, scapegoating um, sort of tool um, in the lead up to yet another um, election. She has, um, she works, you know, in her day job and then um, works together with the community for, um, you know, the hours are enormous that she puts in to um, be able to advocate on behalf of the African community. Um, There is also a Memorial. I don't know. Do, do you yes. know about the memorial? Yeah. Yeah, would you like me to? Speak yeah, about I would that? like you to talk about yeah, that. Great. Okay. So, eleven years ago, um, uh, in September, eleven years ago, very a upsetting. Young, this, actually, lovely. Mm. Yeah, oh, Oh, I apologise. Um, a lovely young man named Liep Goni was um, was targeted by white supremacists and beaten to death. He. Um, he left behind a, you know, he left behind a big loving family who have um, had to not only, um, you know, deal with the devastating circumstances, devastating and horrifying circumstances of his death, but also whilst he was, you know, whilst um, the criminal matter was being heard throughout um, the system, he was also vilified and, um, you know. And, and the way that he was depicted was completely um, was ex- ex- completely unfair, but also just um, completely racialized and you know and criminalized. And um, his his family um, would like to have a peaceful memorial um, for him uh, uh, on the I think it's the twenty sixth of September. Um, where um, and it'll be at lunchtime um, from one to two, where essentially um, the um, African community will come. Well, they will have their memorial for him, you know, in um, in the western suburbs, and then they will come down and um, we, and we'll have a um, very quiet memorial led by um, led by the um, African Australian Choir, who will sing um, a few hymns and just um, lay flowers at. Uh, Lay flowers. We, we think at Parliament House. We, we haven't um, shored up the details yet. Um, so Parliament want... House steps at one to two. Yes. So the thing is, though, that this is you know led by the family. It's um, it's and it's a it's a memorial. So it's um, you know it's up to the family as to how they want this to be um, done. But you know, if people do want to come, you know, we would. You know, we would encourage people to obviously, um, you know, respect their family's views in the way that they uh, would like to um, have this memorial for. But, but to show and, show support and to show sorrow. Uh, absolutely, 
absolutely. And to also, you know, a young, vibrant, beautiful life has been taken. Um, and, you know, from um, a very loving family and loving community and to remember the humanity in everybody because Liette's um, humanity was just his... just his humanity was taken away, not just by the horrifying circumstances of his death, but also the way he was portrayed later. And um, and this is what happens now, um, you know, when we see, uh, you know, media beat-ups of uh, particularly young African kids, uh, you know, it's the whole dehumanisation of, um, you know, the other that is occurring yet again um, that we see in the media and in public discourse. So, Belinda, before we let you go, do you want to uh, give the uh, details to the conference and how people can get tickets? Absolutely. So there are still some tickets available, but um, please um, get in quickly. So it's A Transforming Democracy, Claiming Our Power, is going to be held at the um, Mallantown Hall on uh, Wednesday, the 19th of September. Um, Tickets are available online. Um, You can uh, go to fclc.org.au and just go straight to the link which will take you there. Tickets are of varying prices depending upon, you know, um, depending upon if you're employed or depending upon if you're a student, depending upon um, if you're a person of colour and um, we'd love to see you there. Thanks very much for talking to us this Saturday. Thank you. Pleasure. See you later. Bye. Bye. Well, that was uh, Belinda from the... uh uh, Federation of Community Legal Centres Transforming Democracy, which is their state conference, Wednesday, September the 19th at the Melbourne Town Hall. You're on uh, 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, with Annie and Rebecca, and we've got Lou Wheeler on the line from Fair Go for Pensioners. How are you, Lou? I'm well, Annie, thanks. Yes. Thanks for the opportunity. Now, we're, we're here to talk about the Fair Go for Pensioners uh, uh, Can't Live on Fresh Air, uh, your strategy for uh, 
uh, for the Victorian government helping them out uh, around uh, how they can actually alleviate uh, uh, the poverty epidemic that we're now experiencing. Yes, that's right, Annie. We've uh, we've been putting this uh, strategy to the government for uh, the last couple of years, asking for a commitment, uh, which we have not yet got, um, but we are a very persistent lot. So we're um, asking the government to um, look after the most vulnerable Victorians and make um, an anti-poverty strategy a key priority in this upcoming election. We're looking for commitments from all political parties about what they're going to do um, to alleviate the levels of income poverty and um, wealth inequality in Victoria. Now, it's interesting, so, It's interesting, Lou, because uh, looking at all the papers and documents that you've given me, uh, you're not uh, being, you know, that's a general statement, but you're quite specific about the things that they can do. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. We want them to provide uh, services, whole-of-government services on uh, the prevention of homelessness policies. But what we want with um, the homelessness services, of course, is an overall affordable housing strategy. And what Fairgo for Pensioners says is the only affordable housing for people on minimum wages, so low-wage workers as well as people on pensions and allowances, is public quality public housing because it provides security of tenure. It uh, provides a rent-to-income ratio of 25% of total household income. So you are protected if, in fact, you fall ill, you get uh, have a disability or you get thrown out of work, then you... You know, you won't end up on the street as well. It's a home, not just a roof over your head. So we say to the uh, government, please um, have a moratorium on what you're doing in privatising public housing right at this very moment. Um, stop, reconsider and stop selling off the public land that the, uh, the housing estates, nine estates in um, metropolitan uh, Melbourne, uh, is, uh, is sitting on. Stop selling it off to private developers for their own profit and put the money into public housing because what they're doing on these nine estates, and they're from Flemington, Brunswick, um, um, Stonington oh, right, area. Right. All, all the good, yeah. all the good suburbs. <laughs> all the very good. The suburbs, ring yes, of good <laughs> suburbs. <laughs> you know, that's, relatively that's right. close to the city, close to services. Mm, that's right. And the last time this happened was Kensington, the and there's been a yeah, there's been a research report done on that, and it showed that they um they the government only got five percent of uh, market value on the land. Yeah, that outrageous. Was sold off. It was outrageous, yeah. and we lost. 36% of the um, public and community housing. So this is a very bad idea for people. We have over 82,000 people on the wait list currently, and that includes over 24,000 children. And this is a wait list for public housing. Um, it's just... It's totally outrageous that they're doing this because they ha they clearly say in the policies that... These developments, redevelopments, are not about increasing the size of the housing stock. It's about, um, you know, redeveloping the old public housing stock, but there'll be less of it, and then selling off a whole lot of other 
so-called affordable housing, which will be built by private developers for private sale. Right? And, the, and the madness of it is, of course, as any ordinary person will know, that once you sell, sell your assets, it's a one-off thing. Well, gone. It's gone for good. Yeah, gone for good. That's exactly right. I noticed that uh, that's an extremely important uh, platform that you're putting forward. But I've also noticed that you are dealing with people, because there's a lot of people who are older people who have actually, over time, uh, been able to buy their own homes. And that seems like a an incredible thing these days, I'll have to say. But they did. They uh, worked all their lives. They uh, got a pension. And now uh, they're having difficulties with rates because, of course, that's tied to the cost of the land all around them. So you've got well, some I- elements to do with rates that you're calling for. Well, that's right. We want... Um, it used to be that um, there, you'd get um, a higher percent on a concession. You know, there's a concession system operating in Victoria and there's some help with um, with the amount of rates you have to pay. And we're asking for a return to 100% of concession on rates because the pensioners who bought their house, say, 45 years ago when it was virtually worth you know, very little, yeah, that now they're looking at over, yeah, looking at, you know, anywhere between six and a hundred thousand and a million dollars. And yes, it's a lot of wealth locked up in a house, you could say, but you can't eat your house. No. And so people are sitting there and their houses are literally falling down around their ears because they can't afford the maintenance and they can't afford the rates. Yeah, no, I, I went to a, a, one of these uh, events where one of the Liberal, the woman, Kelly O'Dwyer, was talking about how, you know, there's about 35% of people who have the audacity, older people, have the audacity to uh, retain equity in their homes. And we have to take it from them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. There's a lot of um, equity programs around to show that you can sort of, you can actually eat your house because you take out a loan that will be taken off your estate or when you sell it, whichever comes first. Um, and so, therefore, then, um, you know, by the end of your life, you will have nothing. And yeah, and so will their children. Well, the children, forget about your children. I mean, the thing is that depending on what type of equity loan you get, you might end up owing money because of compounding interest if you don't get into the right equity loan. Like, it's an outrageous proposition. Oh, it's outrageous. Let's move from that. that. That, That's just got me um, uh, on to... Yeah, riled. So let's move on to energy. Yeah, I just for a moment I just wanted to talk about the the rents because oh, I yes. think okay, sorry. for people to really understand why public housing is so important. But the rents in in Melbourne at the moment are four hundred and fifty dollars. This is a median for a rent for a house, four hundred and fifty a week, and in regional area three hundred and thirty a week. If you are on an age pension, um, you got you got the the princely sum of eight dollars seventy a fortnight increase in September you know this now this month and so you're getting nine hundred and sixteen a fortnight but you may have to pay four hundred and fifty a week in rent. So in fact you you'd do have your about sums. Six, oh, do your sums and you end up with sixteen dollars a week to live on for the Oh whole the high the life. Fortnight. They're living the high life. Live, and these are the, this is the highlights, Annie. Yeah live the high life. Absolutely. So it's absolutely outrageous, and the vacancy rates are so low that you can get totally exploited in the amount of rent you pay income. 
Oh, that's really terrible. The situation is desperate. It really is desperate. Mm, On to energy. I I noticed that you've said that uh, you're hoping that uh, adopt the findings of the Essential Service Commission's hardship inquiry. Can you tell, and that's around energy. Can you tell us about that? What's that about? Um, Well, that's um, a couple of years old now, but the report was basically looking at how many people were disconnected in, I think, in 13, 14. It was something like, and we're talking about Victoria, 58,000 cumulative connections in that year. Um, Now, you know, when the lights go out, (laughs) what do you do? And people were disconnected. It used to be that no one could be disconnected in the old days before everything was privatised. Um, and so now they were desperate to find ways of looking at it. So they created a new framework in the hopes that that would bring out some uh, lower um, against con- uh, standard contracts for gas, you know, elect- uh, energy, that um, you would get the discounted rates, and that's coming in. But to uh, discounts that actually mean discounts <laughs> rather than, you know, pretend discounts. And also the, in terms of the hardship programs, it, it used to be that um, you could only get, I think it was something like $132. Um, let me, uh, and it's gone up to 300 that it would allow you then to um, to be able to get a hardship um, plan in place. So that oh, yeah, it right. So it's gone, then, it's yeah, doubled. Yeah. But, but um, so the other it thing. It has doubled. But there's also this thing, um, I, was, I was interested to notice that, that the uh, power and gas concession discounts of 17.5% used to be in effect. And then the Commonwealth Government introduced something that they called, and this is such a happy title, a clean energy advance, <laughs> 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 which of course diddled everybody out of their uh, discount. That's Is that right? right? Yeah, 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 yeah. They take it. You know, the Commonwealth. They give it on one hand, and, they, and the state took it off on the other. So they reduced. They reduced the rate of that payment, which was seventeen point five, by the, that ten percent, which which was something like thirty cents. <laughs> um, um, yeah, for every yeah, thirty cents um, a quarter or something like it was just outrageous. But of course, again, every ten cents if you're matters and it was just an outrageous thing to do and we're saying restore that you know yeah yeah it's a, it's a real thimble and pea game isn't it where they do they steal from you right in front of your eyes yes that's right and you don't know about it until it's done um and and then you're there they're left fighting for about five years to try and claw it back but of course, the real value of all of these concessions have been going has been going down for years now. Um, and again, uh, the the pea and thimble trick is that the government will say, no, 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 the the you know, the overall amount has increased, and you can say yes, but you know they included school children. <laughs> So they oh. extended the categories, but oh. not the actual increase in the rates. And that's oh, beautiful wow. that primary kids can get an excursion, you know, yeah, yeah. to help them parents pay. That's brilliant. But then you don't pretend that that means that the, that the uh, rates have increased. And, I mean, what we've got, you know, with public transport, for instance, that it went up, it goes up every January. Yeah, yeah, without January, any comment. That's right. Um, I told um, I was, told somebody went, this. I said, you know, that the public fares go up every year without comment, and they said, oh no, they have to go, and it has to be argued. No, 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 no. 
that's right. And it went up 2.2% in line with CPI. And then we Unlike had the 2.5%. Mm. Hello? Yeah? You're still here? Uh, yeah. Um, um, we had 2.5%, which was announced in December 13 budget to, as a contribution to the ongoing operations of public transport. So, in fact, it was 4.7% increase. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did notice and, this. Yeah, and you cannot. You, I mean, if you're on a fixed income, where are you going to get that extra money? Oh, I know, I know. It's really, it's really extraordinary. Um, I and just what, remind people that they're on 3CR and we're talking to uh, Lou Wheeler from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners. Uh, because we're coming up to the end of, I mean, there's so many things to talk to you about, Lou. <laughs> uh, but um, I was really interested in uh, the approach that you're putting forward, which is a very interesting approach. Establish poverty reduction targets for reporting against annually in Parliament. This is a very good idea because Parliament and the way it operates is very bureaucratic and this is a really good way. It's like having a uh, poverty uh, targets and like, or a happiness target or something like that. You know, it's it's a, 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 a um, what is it, a, 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 a point of reference that's right. Well, and it can show you, um, you know, it's a measure against your achievements and how you're doing as well. What is it and how are we getting there? Did we meet the target, didn't we? And as we know often, targets, you know, you are not bullseyes. You don't meet them. But the thing is, if you've got one, you have a way of measuring your success or otherwise. And that's the really important thing. And, and it also saying, says that this is an important community and people are important. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that in what it's really saying is we don't need to have poverty in this state or in Australia. We are a wealthy country. We're a wealthy state. And nobody should be going through garbage bins to try and get food. There are... There's been a 10% increase in the number of individuals seeking food to eat because they can't afford. They're starving. 10% increase. Now, that's a shocking figure. And this is, this is um, reported from the food banks. And um, 41% of 3.6 million Australians can't pay their bills because they have to decide to feed their family or starve their family and pay the bill. Uh, if you've got children, like, you, that's mm, not a choice. No. Well, there's no choice, is there? No. And this is supposed to be, you know, um, a country of informed choice. It's either lights out, eat, lights on, starve, eat, don't pay the bills, and then have the worry of that and people end up being sick with worry. Like, really, we have to begin to find our compassion again, to say this is not good enough. We want change and we want it now. We want the commitments from the governments, both state and federal, because we've got a new statement about to be released um, to how you might get there at the federal level. We've got one. We've done one for the state and we're now wanting one for the federals. So yeah. we want the commitments and we'll be asking all political parties, watch your commitments. Well, that's interesting because uh, often it's uh, easy to forget that uh, the federal government and funding arrangements really do affect state governments. So, for example, 
the uh, federal government at the moment, the complexion, the LNP complexion of this government and its uh, ideological approaches has meant that they've squeezed uh, – Closed funding for infrastructure, etc., to different uh, Labor-led uh, state governments, and so those governments are actually looking into other ways of uh, dealing with uh, their uh, budgets. So um, it's a really important thing that you're doing there to to show the connection between the ideological framework of the federal government and how it affects our lives. Well, that's exactly right. And I mean, on, on the concessions, when the Abbott government came into power in fourteen, one of the first things they did was to act something called a national partnership agreement on certain concessions. And they took, in effect, they took $80 million out of the concessions program in Victoria as a result of that, axing that program. They consulted no one. It had two years to run, and overnight it was just simply axed. And uh, Victoria lost about $80 million. Now, they had the choice then of saying, well, what do we do? Do we just stop the concessions um, on on these concessions or do we try and maintain them? Um, and they did maintain them. But, of course, they're not maintaining the real value. It has been going down, as I said earlier. So, yes, I mean, the connection between the, the state and federal is absolutely critical to understand the way in which policies are driven outside of the, the politics of, of, of what drives policy. You've got those federal-state relations, which are so important. Well, Lou, we have to say goodbye today. So how could people be part of your crew? Well, um, can I just uh, two things? We've yeah. um, on uh, Thursday, the fourth of October, we've got International Day of Older Persons. We're celebrating that with a seminar looking at some of these issues, and we're also launching our recommendation statement about a vision for Australia in 2046. What we believe um, it's going to look like, what we want it to look like, and how you're going to get there, and that's for the federal government. And um, we're inviting everybody along from 11 to 1 o'clock at the um, Australian Manufacturing Workers in, um, Conference Room at 251 Queensbury Street, Carlton. And also come along to our stall at Seniors Festival Celebration Day on Sunday, the 7th of October. We will be there. We can talk to you about all of these issues and we'll have some information to hand out to people. So please, everybody... Come up and stand with us and we'll start fighting for what's right and fair and decent. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. Well, that was uh, Lou Willer from the Fair Go for Pensioners. And coming up right now is This is the Week That Was. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when yet again our fourth estate watchdog, our guardian of decency and community cohesion, Lord Rupert of Wapping, was forced reluctantly, through his Lord Rupert of Wapping sin, to alert us, sensation, sensation, P1 splash, to that great anti-decency, anti-community, anti-cohesion threat, black African youth gangs. Limiting the space Lord Rupert et al. haven't been able to devote to the white, well mostly white, Caucasian uniform gangs of thugs who attacked Annie last Friday night. And in saying that, I hope Annie you're feeling a lot better. And I'm almost prepared to forgive you, almost prepared for not coming in last week and playing this segment using a little bit of fractured bone and presumably shock and feeling crook as an excuse. 
And the good news is our socialist state government is giving those white Caucasian uniformed gangs of thugs even more paramilitary arsenals and power. So that must be the socialist thing to do. Last week we had this very, very difficult quiz called Guess Who? The two clues being recent True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headlines, Never Trust a Queensland Copper, and Duffer, a low version of Trample the Poor, says China Media. And the answer was, you'd never have guessed, the Minister for Keeping Us Secure, Constable Peter Duffer. Which I raise because this week, when former big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull called from London for Pete's childcare subsidies to be referred to the High Court to determine whether poor Pete may not be eligible to keep us secure about which I thought there was no doubt, Malcolm's backstabber scuttled them more lashed than and Pete said Parliament had voted on that and therefore proved Pete was eligible. Uh, by one vote. Yes, one vote, that's all you need, including Pete's own vote. Yes, of course, he's eligible. So he's eligible because he voted to say he's eligible. Oh, no need to answer that. And it's not true, listener. He voted to make sure they couldn't prove he was ineligible. But Pete and Scuttlebim did make one accurate point. On that vote, as he attempted to save his job, the now righteous Malcolm also voted to make sure they couldn't prove Pete was ineligible. But not only Malcolm, but the also discarded former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, will not guarantee she would not vote to send poor old Pete off to the High Court, showing how the caring business class party's musical chairs worked so well and have been followed by a big game of happy families. The... Did I hear that correctly award to the lot last seen standing behind Malcolm two weeks ago, knives dripping, and more so the three years of sharpening those knives in public, mostly on the Sydney shock jock station, former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses and Constable Duffer restrict themselves too, who now call for Malcolm to go away quietly and not continually undermine the new leader? Uh... That couldn't be right. Did I hear that correctly? To engender that unity with his innate gate charisma, Scuttle them turned up on stage in Albury, and with due respect to Albury, when you turn up on stage in Albury, it's obvious your musical career isn't exactly on the up. Scuttle them belting out, All you need is love. We all love True Blue Aussie, and therefore we all love all True Blue Aussies he preached. Thus scuttle them, and Tiny, and Pete, and Kevin Ann screws the workers, and Erica Betts on the bosses, and George Christian married son, and Conchita Fiery Rants well, and Matt Cole Caravan, well, the united, tight-knit, love-thy-neighbour team must love all True Blue Aussies, including evil workers and evil pejorative, pejorative union bosses. Although, given Scuttlebem's Pentecostal church believes, well, knows, the more wealthy you are, the more the dear baby Jesus loves you, it must be a stretch religiously for poor Scuttlebem to love the poor. 
as an aside, the one catch is that does this mean we have to love them? But in a week when he called for the deregistration of the evil construction union because of its out-of-control anti-true blue Aussie industrial sabotage, regularly taking action, illegal, unprotected action over insignificant matters like workers' health and safety, when yet another construction worker was murdered and two others injured, caring employers and their mouthpieces like the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review have also supported the need to get this blot on society deregistered. Indeed, the Capitalist Review calls for action over this out-of-control union by the day, but has not even reported the two recent murders on building sites, although... Sorry, I said murder, because there's another major threat Karl Marx wrote, murder isn't murder, when it's done for profit. One of the union's most heinous ongoing crimes is attempting to have construction workers, wait for this, join the union when all of the other above reasonable politicians and expert responsible commentators know the first and most critical right of caring business class relations is the right not to join a union. And second, the union they don't join has no right to charge them some sort of fee for improving their wages and conditions with the fees paid by those evil, lazy, avaricious workers who choose to join the union. I always feel that argument logically gives me the right to walk into any business, take whatever goods I want, and declare they have no right to charge me, which thus far has failed miserably. The logic doesn't seem to apply. I'm treated like a thief. I believe in non-union rights, I plead. Anyway, there's this interesting case heading for the federal court where a law firm is suing the construction union for gaining all these benefits for union members at a later hire firm which non-union members missed out on. It negotiated only on behalf of those workers who joined the union, ignoring that first and most critical principle of caring business class relations. How evil can you get? The union treachery, this law firm righteously claims, robbed its clients and was contrary to non-union members' interests. Now, here's the shocking bit, listener. The union, President Tony Marr claimed, you're not going to believe this, did nothing to cut across the rights of others, when we've just proved it broke the most important right of all. The union advertised across work sites for workers to join the union if they wanted to be part of the litigation. If you don't get on the train, you don't get the benefits. They're riding our back a bit like a jockey. Talk about mixed metaphors, ignoramus, and how diametrically opposite to the love-all-true-blue-Aussies philosophy of scuttle-them-tiny-in-the-team. That don't join but enjoy the benefits philosophy, which doesn't of course apply to caring employers, but is essential for their workers, is not dissimilar to the US of the UN of the US of the world's attitude to the international court. Refuse to join but assume as the world's leader and arbiter of liberty, freedom and democracy, the right to determine who should be dragged before the court. The bad guys who don't believe in the US of's arbitered liberty, freedom and democracy.
They refused to join BIT based on the deeply principled determination that no US of citizen should ever face the court of justice. As if the world's great self-proclaimed protector would commit war crimes. A determination so ingrained that that epitome of peace and love thy neighbour, go to war advisor John Bolton the head, has declared the court will disappear off the face of the earth altogether. Its personnel won't get past the US of border because it is considering the outrageous possibility it may charge cream of US of youth, young men and women in uniform, great fun to be with, love their families and dear little children, trained killers, with minor misdemeanours like torture, slaughter and destruction. What is this blot on world justice thinking? Imagine what life would be like in Afghanistan and Iraq, as just two examples, if the US OB had not liberated them with a bit of torture, slaughter and destruction. Speaking of protecting the peace with a little bit of necessary war, back to that quiz that didn't make it to air last week thanks to the Victorian... Uh, sorry, coppers, that Duffer, a low version of Trump or the poor, says China media headline. Well, the article claimed Constable Duffer's low, a low version of USR Big Supremo Donald by attacking his concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats policy, his boycotting the stolen generation's apology, his recent comments about African crime gangs, well, so-called, and he was an embarrassment in true blue Aussie politics, the Global Times spat out, showing why it is critical that Donald and thus true blue Aussie go to war with evil China. And we must join our great peace-loving mentor, the US of, in commemorating that great tragedy, 9-11, the mass slaughter and torture and displacement, and the years of mass slaughter and torture and displacement after the US of coup, the overthrow of the elected Allende government and the establishment of the butcher, mass-murdering, pinch-of-shit regime in Chile on 9-11-1973. Speaking of death, hate to have to be critical, but I have to criticise all of us, yes, including myself, for being so, so selfish. Because the funeral industry has complained that profits are falling because not enough of us are dying. We're not playing our role. We're not doing our bit for the economy. Bringing us back to that non-evil union right, any doubts of just how evil, evil unions are, were erased by the Pig Eye and Bob Research Foundation, that totally independent appendage of the Caring Business Class Party, which researched and attacked the Pro-Union Fair Work Act. And one of our caring business class favourite geniuses in us will cost the workers big supremo of the True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council who called on Scuttle them to address as his first urgent item of business tightening up caring business class relations laws which as he too explains are so loaded toward so favour evil unions and workers and so biased against poor caring employers. So finally, not sure sure what he has in mind, but possibly the stocks, the lash, maybe the noose. And just think, the latter could help out the poor funeral industry. Win-win. Good morning. Ah, yes. Good morning, Kevin. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, apparently, uh, there's going to be some sort of event uh, with uh, uh, Abbott and a whole range of other... Um, oh, and that guy... Um, oh, anyway, Liberal... 
PMs, uh, uh, MPs, sorry, MPs, federal. And it's all about, and it, the headline is something about, uh, it's a seminar and it's about uh, how to uh, uh, bring back uh, the the uh, Australian, um, Australia from the, uh, influ- uh, the overwhelming influence of the left. Whoa. Can you imagine? Yeah. I just, they're just full of it, these guys. Yeah. They obviously think, you know, it's one yeah, of those. Yeah, what they're. Minds are thinking. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Mm. The, the, it's like uh, the victim. Yeah. They, they're the victims. Yes. It's like white supremacists. Where, you know, what about the poor white man? Yeah. <laughs> like that guy this week that was um, charged with defacing uh, Eurydice Dixon's memorial. Yeah. And he said he did it because uh, for uh, white men's rights. He I mean, for God's sake. everybody was being, you know... Picking uh, on him. men and, yeah. yeah. In fact, he was one of the people that went in to see Nigel Farage on Friday. Oh. So he's obviously found his yep. his group. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Anyway, we're going to move on to the Melbourne tribute to uh, Laurie Carmichael. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And I went down to the uh, event that was held at the uh, uh, AM in the Australian... Midwifery and Nurses Federation. I can't remember all the letters. But anyway, they've got these fabulous offices down in uh, Elizabeth Street and the event was put on by the AMWU, that's the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. See, I'm getting them all together, corralling all those letters. Um, That was, of course, the union that uh, Laurie Carmichael was the Assistant Secretary secretary for before he became one of the uh, Assistant Secretaries for the ACTU. And was uh, part of a whole range of things. In fact, one of the things that he was involved in was uh, the strategy that um, removed the penal powers in the industrial relations uh, uh, area. The the Laurie O'Shea, uh, when the tram... Tram official, tramways official Laurie O'Shea was uh, put into prison and there was the masses of uh, workers coming out on the streets against this. Uh, it was a big... Uh, uh, it, uh, uh, there's a turning of the wheel going on here where a whole range of things that uh, were finally defeated. But it hasn't always be, been a, such a rosy picture, of course. People, uh, unionists were able to be put in jail for standing up for rights and stuff like that. And, you know, as I said, a turning of the wheel. Anyway, a variety of people turned up to this uh, event, including Bill Shorten, I'll have to say. It was a pretty big big affair. Like There was Bill Shorten, there was uh, Kim Carr, there was um, uh, – oh, I can't remember the ALP guy that I should remember. Uh, he used to be in the Keating government and uh, was uh, part of the uh, social contract. He was there. Um there was uh and and Bill Calty was there of course um but uh this uh, the two exits we've got are from uh, first up we're going to hear from um Senator Doug Cameron one because he's got a great voice but also he's a class warrior so let's hear what he's got to say Laurie Carmichael was a remarkable Australian he was a leader a campaigner an intellectual and to many union activists, he was a mentor and friend. His values, his principles, his politics and his formidable intellect combined to make him one of the greatest trade unionists this country has produced. 
it was tough, it was gruff, and when he needed to be, he was uncompromising. And he was uncompromising when it came to the interests of the working class in this country. As a leading communist, he was feared and reviled by many of his industrial and political opponents. Liberal PM Billy McMahon described Laurie as the most evil man in the country. <laughs> I think he wore that with pride. It's a bizarre proposition that Laurie, who was fighting on behalf of the working classes of, of Australia, fighting for decent wages and conditions, peace and equality, could be described as evil. In the few minutes I have available, I want to concentrate on his role as the leader of the AMWU and how he inspired working class activists like myself, Julius Rowe, Dave Oliver, Max Ogden, and many others to fight for industrial rights and social and political change. Laurie's leadership and friendship was invaluable to me as a rank and file activist and organizer and eventually the leader of the AMWU. As an ALP senator, much to some of my comrades' uh, dislike, Laurie's values and principles continue to guide me on policy analysis and ensuring that the interests of the working class are at the forefront of my thinking and my actions. I don't include you in that, Bill. He was an inspiration. He was an inspiration. Laurie was a visionary who ensured the AMWU was at the cutting edge of technology. The education was the glue that held our industrial and political campaigns together. The union education programs encompass politics, the environment, the peace movement, and critical analysis of the development of and the weaknesses of capitalism. I remember Laurie presenting lectures at the Clyde Cameron College on computerization and the development of computers. Laurie would describe the contribution of the British mathematician Charles Babbage, who developed the analytical engine, the forerunner to basic computers. Here was all these you know, boiler makers and fitters sitting down listening to this uh, from Bill Kelty, uh, from, Bill, uh, uh, from Laurie Carmichael. Laurie was not a Luddite. He recognized the contribution of science and technology, and he applied it to the day-to-day -day work of the AMWU. AMWU delegates were taught the difference between strategy and tactics, how to present a case in the commission and how to cross-examine a witness. We were trained to be mindful militants, conscious of the implications of our actions on our members and the industrial development and economic prosperity of the country. The Carmichael-inspired education programme made AMWU delegates formidable opponents for employers and was the basis of our industrial and political success. Our officials and delegates were supported by a sophisticated and well-resourced research centre with access to a research library on a wide range of economic and political resources. This was obviously before the days of the internet and Google. Laurie ensured that we had access to high-level, independent economic advice through the employment of a dedicated union economist capable of analysing the economic and social implications of our industrial and political decisions. Our economist, Nixon Apple, and he's here today, uh, was highly respected by business, government and the rank and file membership 
and along with Laurie, uh, they were a formidable team. Laurie was the Assistant National Secretary of the Union, <laughs> but no one doubted that he was the leader of the Union. His leadership was fundamental to the growth of the Union, the wages and conditions of our members, and the success of the Union's campaigns. Laurie had an international outlook, and now I know why. Uh, he, would, he would introduce to the AMWU the successful concepts, theories, and practices of the international trade union movement, particularly from Italy and Scandinavia. Honesty and, and integrity were fundamental to Laurie's capacity to engage with the key industrial and political decision makers. Last week, I had a brief discussion with the former head of the Australian industry group, Bob Herbert who outlined the respect that Laurie was held in by the MTIA and especially the former leader, Bert Evans. Bob indicated that a handshake from Laurie Carmichael was sufficient for the MTIA to reach agreement on issues of significant industrial and economic implications for the industry and the country. Laurie was a tough and sophisticated negotiator. I remember on one occasion in my early days as part of the union's negotiating team with the MTIA, in the days when I wasn't as diplomatic as I am now, <laughs> I made a stupid mistake and gave Bert Evans a mouthful. Laurie pulled, it, pulled me aside and ripped shreds off of me. He told me if I wanted to be a successful negotiator, I should never put the other side in a situation where they had no room to move. It was a good lesson from an expert negotiator. Laurie developed and led some of the biggest industrial and political campaigns in the country, including organizing industrial action against the penal provisions and supporting Clary O'Shea when he was jailed by Sir John Kerr for contempt of the industrial court when he refused to pay $8,100 in fines. Laurie was instrumental in defeating the penal provisions breaking the Fraser government wage freeze, winning the 38-hour week, developing career paths for metal workers, winning industrial democracy rights for metal workers, working with Bill Kelty and the ACTU on superannuation. These were just a few of the union's achievements under Laurie's leadership. As you would be aware, Laurie and the AMWU were also prominent in the moratorium campaign against the war in Vietnam. These achievements were made even more significant when you consider that the AMWU was under constant political attack from employers, governments, and the anti-communist grouper forces external to the union and from within the union. We seem to be in continuous union elections campaigns against the forces that would seek to turn the AMWU into a tame cat union. Despite this, Laurie was never diverted from improving conditions and increasing the living standards of his members. Laurie was criticised by some for his support and leadership in developing the accord process. I remember Laurie discussing the limitations of the union movement focusing solely on wages and conditions. Laurie understood the importance of the social wage, which included access for the working class to decent health care and education, and to have an influence in the political direction of the country. Laurie understood that mindless militancy would lead inevitably 
to significant attacks on workers' rights. The capacity to deliver support for the accord within the AMWU should never be underestimated. The establishment of our education programme and the capacity of the education programme to deliver an understanding of the accord process to rank and file act activists was fundamental to the support of the union. When I reflect on Laurie's leadership, his determination to build a highly educated, militant and effective delegate structure was one of his greatest achievements. The great union achievements of the 80s, shorter hours, superannuation, increased living standards, universal health care, improved access to university and access to skilled training at TAFE could not be achieved under the current political and industrial legislation. Laurie and Bill Kelty led a movement that had defeated the penal provisions through access to industrial rights and legislation that is not available to Sally and the trade union movement today. When I first came to Sydney as the Assistant State Secretary of the Union, Laurie Carmichael could organise mass meetings at Redfern Oval and Leichhardt Oval of between 10 and 15,000 workers. Laurie would use pattern bargaining and right of entry provisions to advance the wages and conditions of workers. There were few, if any, restrictions on what workers could bargain for. Laurie used the hot shops to support the weak shops. There was little free riding by non-unionists in union workshops in those days. Unfortunately, privatisation, marketisation, free trade agreements and so-called economic and industrial reform have weakened the union movement's capacity to effectively deliver for the workforce the way that Laurie Carmichael and Bill Kelty did in their times leading the trade union movement. Neoliberalism, vicarious employment and enterprise bargaining has resulted in a broken system. When even the OECD recognises that income inequality is rife and the IMF notes that weakening the trade union movement weakens wages and conditions, then something has changed. It's essential that the trade union movement defend the CFMEU as they are subjected to unacceptable industrial legislation and political attacks by the Liberal national government. We must reset the industrial system. Laurie Carmichael would accept nothing less. We cannot be subjected to industrial legislation that is unheard of in other OECD countries. We need strong laws to support the working class who are facing increased attacks through the gig economy, casualisation and lack of basic rights. Laurie Carmichael would have demanded no less. Laurie Carmichael was a great trade unionist. Laurie Carmichael was a fantastic leader. And Sally, I'm sure you will be one of the great leaders of the trade union movement in this country as well. Thank you. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. I want to pay my respects to the people of the Kulin Nations and their elders past and present. On behalf of the Australian trade union movement, I want to extend our deepest sympathies to Laurie Carmichael's family 
to his friends, to his comrades and to his union. Storytelling is such an important part of our movement. Battles fought, as we've heard, lessons learnt, the disputes, the standoffs, the pickets, the protests, the achievements, the sacrifices, crushing defeats sometimes and euphoric victories. And then there's a list of proud achievements stretching back 170 years or so. And these achievements can be recited a bit like the Times Table by so many unionists. This understanding of our history, who we are, how we see ourselves and our place in our country's history, it shapes how we approach the challenges of today, the level of confidence we bring and the principles we take forward. Today we've heard stories about the great Laurie Carmichael. Laurie the person, Laurie the father, Laurie the union leader, Laurie the communist, Laurie the achiever, Laurie the master strategist. Laurie's brilliant touch and brilliant mind is written all over most of the action-packed, achievement-rich generation of unionists. This generation after World War II there's no rival to the achievements of this generation. Yes, the foundations were laid by those in the second half of the 19th century, but Laurie's generation was our golden generation, where we had our highest union density and our greatest achievements, where we went beyond workplace rights and shaped our society and our lives of today in even more profound ways, as has been talked about Medicare, superannuation, women's liberation, stopping wars, ending apartheid. This generation achieved working people's highest share of our country's wealth. They achieved the highest level of economic equality our country has ever experienced. And all of this was achieved by people, our people, union people. And amongst this generation, as Bill has said, our golden generation, standing the tallest with just a few others around him, was Laurie Carmichael. His dreams, his brilliant mind, his strategic ability, his total commitment and belief in us, working people, the trade union movement. And whilst there were some unique characteristics to his time in history, the dialectic that sharpened the minds of all union leaders committed to their ideology at the time of the Cold War, so many of their achievements were won at a time when nearly all private sector jobs were insecure, where unions were deregistered, where there was conscription, where there was political repression, state-sponsored fear-mongering and witch hunts, where governments used repressive and subversive powers of ASIO and the police in a way that would make Macalia Cash blush. <laughs> so this generation's achievements, Laurie's achievements, were no way inevitable or just some byproduct of the time. These were not things that were just washed up with the tide of change that swept the world. They were not the result of a, a spontaneous uprising of the working class. They did not come from flower power. They were not simply gifts of Labor governments. They were plotted and they were planned. They were the result of game plans, as I hear on kitchen tables, of strategy, of unity and of action. And these strategies could not be implemented centrally, not by one person. They needed the support of a whole movement. Hundreds of thousands of union members had to be convinced. Other union leaders had to be convinced. 
the individual union member on the shop floor had to be convinced. These game plans needed visionaries, architects and advocates, and Laurie, it seems, was all three of these. To deliver a vision, he had to explain, to convince, to withstand not just the debates of our opponents, but the challenges and questions from the shop floor. People had to not just agree with the analysis of the problems and the strategy to overcome, but they had to take action to implement this strategy. And this action had risks that would cost them personally. Any of the achievements we talk about could have failed if this generation did not have leaders who had the capacity to do these things, to dream, to strategize, and to convince. And this was Laurie. He was the one. He did not fail. Without him, we would not have the achievements and we would not have the same union pride. We would not have our history and we would not have our stories. Some people will say Laurie's legacy was social wage because it's so essential to the accord. Others will tell you it's a 38-hour week and others will um, uh, say other things. Others will say it's the expansion of the union movement's activism from work to home to the whole of society. Others might say it was stopping war and fighting injustice like with Clary O'Shane. I'm not here to tell you they're wrong because they're right, but there's something else. Laurie's legacy is making us, the generation that followed and my generation, believe that really big change is possible. Because your horizon is set to where others point. If they pointed low, that's your starting point. If it's high, well then you shoot for nothing less. If you are not told stories of your history that involve great achievements, believing in Imagining big change is so much harder. Our history, uh, uh, in our history, people dreamt not just of a better world, they actually tried to achieve it. In our history, there's bravery, there's boldness, there's principled and strategic action. If we did not have this history, what would inspire us? What would make us believe we can overcome in tough circumstances? What will make us believe that big change is possible? But we have these stories. Laurie wrote them for us. They inspire us, they sustain us, they give us pride and self-belief. They point the way. What a legacy. Thank you and farewell, comrade. We'll look to you and take inspiration from you every single day. <laughs> That's such a nice idea. Uh, we've come to the end of the program, and uh, that was, of course, Sally McManus, and she was at the uh, tribute to Laurie Carmichael. Before that, we had Doug Cameron, who was uh, uh, who worked with Laurie Carmichael and took some um, messages from the great man. Uh, before that, we did uh, This Is The Week That Was. We talked to Lou Wheeler about a uh, strategy for uh, re- getting rid of... Um, 
poverty in Victoria, fair go for pensioners. We uh, talked to Belinda, who's from the Federation of Community Legal Centres, Transforming Democracy State Conference, Wednesday, September the 19th, down at uh, the Melbourne Town Hall. That's for uh, for the general public as well as for community legal service people. Great line-up there. And uh, we also heard from uh, Dr Paul Sutton, who works at uh, Victoria Trades Hall, about the Victorian Industrial Manslaughter Campaign. If you want to get on board, go to megaphone.org.au petitions, industrial manslaughter, and they will contact you as well. Uh, thanks for coming in, Rebecca. No worries. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to hear from you in yes. future programs. Yeah. Okay, we're coming, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with a little bit of music. Yeah, it's just sometimes they don't. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.